Welcome to the Bulgarian History Podcast, episode 114, The End of the Concert. First, as always, I want to thank our newest Patreon patrons, Christoph and Georgi Gergeyev. Thank you so much to all of you. And as always, you know, get in touch if I can help. There's some new kind of uh, regulations about uh, what's it like some kind of tax things with Patreon that might affect everyone. I'll be hopefully sending out a message about that recently. But anyone who's interested in Patreon has suggestions for Patreon. As always, just get in touch. Uh, I'm always kind of looking for new ways to do cool stuff for you all. So thank you, everyone. Now, Last time, we covered an intense fight between many Bulgarian advocates and the Greek-dominated Patriarchate, in which Bozveli and Makariopolsky made some substantial gains before being exiled. More Bulgarian publications were being created as a new generation of revolutionaries slowly came up. Then, the revolutions of 1848 racked Europe, bringing the Second Republic to France, a failed attempt at German unification, and the near destruction of the Austrian Empire, as well as the laying of the groundwork for the Hungarians to come up within that empire. In addition, there were attempted revolutions in Wallachia and Moldavia, which ultimately resulted in the Russian Empire stepping in to restore order in Austria, Wallachia, and Moldavia. Now, With the 1848 revolutions crushed, the Ottomans are studying just how to best kind of fight liberal movements, all while slowly developing a vision for their own Ottoman nationalism. Now, it's time to delve into the post-1848 Europe, one in which liberalism has been crushed by conservatism but remains defiant, and one in which this new world is being reshaped, in which the concert of Europe, which had helped kind of keep the status quo and prevent a broader European war since the era of Napoleon, was slowly cracking under the weight of great power ambitions. Now, back in the spring of 1849, while some of those European revolutions were still ongoing, Nicholas Srandak established himself near the Serbian-Ottoman border and began organizing an uprising. Around the same time that Puyo Vojvoda began a propaganda campaign in the area, and an own, his own uprising in Vidin. Soon, the rebels of this uprising were pushed back by Ottoman forces, and by April 20th, those rebels were forced to flee to Serbia. On March 1st, Serbia turned them over to the Ottomans. Once again, northwest Bulgaria was a hotbed of anti-Ottoman activity, and the Serbian principality was using this to carry favor with the Ottomans. Despite the fact that the Obrenovich dynasty was no longer ruling Serbia and the more vehemently anti-Ottoman and pro-independence Karadjordjevic dynasty had taken over, their overall strategy doesn't seem to have really changed. Serbia did not aim to use the revolutions of 1848 and their aftermath to liberate all the Serbs living in Ottoman and Austrian empires, but clearly aiding Bulgarian revolutionaries did not part, play a part in their larger plans, and so, well, they were willing to hand them over to the Ottomans. In fact, while Serbia's long-term ambitions were secret at this time, they held deep contradictions. 
aiming at once for South Slavic unity against the Ottomans and the Austrians, as well as, well, Serbian domination in the region. This kind of embodies Serbia's wariness towards Bulgaria and what would sound familiar to anyone who studied the history of Yugoslavia, both expressing an interest in possibly joining Bulgaria, but also seeing them as a rival for kind of Balkan hegemony. Now, another quick note about Serbia during this time. Its early decades of independence saw substantial political development, but importantly, not very much economic development to accompany it. As Misha Glenny put it, quote, Serbia became a state with an elaborate administrative skeleton, but not much economic flesh on its bones, end quote. So, as we see Serbia being you know, fairly competent and sort of doing what it likes with Bulgarian revolutionaries and ingratiating itself with the Ottomans and you know building up its kind of military forces and things like this, we really have to remember that at the same time, there's not a lot of economic development going on. So that's just something that will play into later events. But now, getting back to those failed revolutions. Hundreds up to perhaps 2,000, we're not sure of the exact numbers, of refugees poured into Vidin and the surrounding region in August of 1849. They were mostly Hungarians, Italians, and Poles fleeing failed revolutions in the rest of Europe. They entered the Ottoman Empire looking for asylum, and initially, the Ottomans allowed them into Vidin. They eventually spread around the region with the largest group settling in Schumann. Many later went to Western Europe and even the United States, though some chose to remain in Bulgarian lands in the Ottoman Empire. Now, it was quite ironic that Bulgaria would now serve as a place of refuge for these liberal revolutionaries, and interesting that the Ottomans allowed them in. The concert of Europe and the conservatism which these men fought had all benefited the Ottomans immensely. Remember, time and time again, the Russians or Egyptians could have easily destroyed the Ottoman Empire and divided it up, but the concert of Europe did not want to see the sort of European balance of power and the status quo upended. And so they fought to make sure the Ottoman realm would be kind of preserved. Now, 1849 also finally brought some real progress on the efforts of the Bulgarian church to obtain independence. No, Bulgarians did not get an independent church, but one of the demands put out by Bozveli and Makariopolsky was finally met. The desire to have a physical Bulgarian church in Constantinople. It would still answer to the patriarchate, but it was the property of the Bulgarian people, held services in the Bulgarian language, and its governing council was the first Bulgarian organization of any kind to gain official Ottoman recognition since 1393. So it was a big milestone in a lot of ways. Now, if you've been to Istanbul, maybe you're thinking of the famous Iron Church of St. Stephen. But this is, well, is and is not that church. Uh, it's the same church in the sense that it's the Church of St. Stephen, the same roughly location. But it, it was a rather more modest wooden building initially donated by Stefan Bogorodi. Now, Later on, the Iron Church would replace it, but we'll talk about that when we get to that period in history. Now, Stefan Bogoridi was an Ottoman statesman of Bulgarian origin, who is the grandson, actually, of Sofronius of Vratza, a kind of famous church official. Now, I want to take a quick aside to look at his biography, because it's pretty fascinating, and shows something I've talked about before, but haven't really gone into detail about, which is 
what some Bulgarians could accomplish within the Ottoman system. Obviously, the Ottoman system was not great for Bulgarians. There were a lot of you know, roadblocks to becoming wealthy and things, but some Bulgarians did, you know, integrate themselves within that system. Not as many as, you know, Greeks or Albanians who really tended to kind of flourish, right? Lots of Greeks and Albanians in the higher echelons of Ottoman military and administrative and, of course, in church roles and things in those roles, but fewer Bulgarians. But Stefan is an exception. Now, he was born in Kotel in the 1770s. He then studied at a Greek school in Bucharest before coming, becoming a dragoman, which is kind of an interpreter, in the Ottoman navy. He took part in the Ottoman campaign against Napoleon in Egypt, and then was allowed to govern a province in Moldavia before ultimately actually becoming an advisor to Mahmoud II and subsequently governing a Greek island. Now, by this time, by the time he actually donated the house and the land for this Bulgarian church, he was actually on the Tanzimat Council, helping to promote reforms within the Ottoman Empire, and by this point was in his late 60s or early 70s, his exact age is unknown. But it's interesting. It's, it's a man who, you know, born a Bulgarian, who learned Greek and kind of, you know, importantly, this was, I think, one of the important ways for Bulgarians to really advance in the Ottoman system was to uh, Hellenify themselves. But he did that and he was tremendously successful. You know, he was at this point a, a leading figure in the reforms in the Ottoman Empire and, and an important person in Constantinople. But that aside, despite the victory of gaining a church in Constantinople, Overall, Bulgarians were, st were still really struggling with their efforts to obtain church independence. R.J. Crampton did a good job kind of summarizing the struggle at this point, writing, quote, If they were to make any progress towards ecclesiastical independence, it seemed the Bulgarians would need foreign sponsorship, similar to what the British had given the Protestants. For many Bulgarians, especially those educated in Russia, the Tsar seemed the obvious source of such backing, not least because Russia had consistently supported the call for the appointment of Bulgarian bishops to the Bulgarian seas. But Russia, like the patriarch, did not want divisions in orthodoxy, the purported right to protect whose adherents had since 1774 provided the justification for Russian diplomatic intervention in the Ottoman Empire. Many Bulgarians were puzzled by their Russian proposition. End quote. So, again, I think this is so, this is why we, in this podcast, try to talk about some of these broader things because, you know, to the Bulgarians, they see Russia as a supporter, right? As a great power with, you know, the interests of them as Slavs and as Orthodox Christians in mind. But, you know, while that's occasionally the case, right, Russia is giving money every single year to help fund education and things in Bulgaria. Ultimately, Russia has its own interests and its own goals and those kind of great power conflicts and Russia's desire to maintain a position that allows it to intervene in the Ottoman Empire basically when it wants to, well, that's going to always take precedence. So it gives a little bit of kind of context to what's holding these Bulgarian kind of efforts back. And I think the importance of having foreign backing, you know, all these Bulgarian uprisings time and time again, we've seen that without a foreign state to back them politically, economically, or militarily, it's almost impossible for them to succeed. You know, the Serbian and the Greek uprisings have shown that. And sadly for the Bulgarians, they just have consistently not been in position to get that kind of foreign backing. And this example shows why that's still the case when it comes to Russia. Now, 
as with Serbia and really everything else in this area, when we're thinking about how Serbia fit into all this, it still came down to realpolitik, if you will. Whether you're talking about Slavic unity, Christian solidarity, these ideas don't have much power or sway on the international stage unless they're being used for political ends. For most Bulgarian revolutionaries, it's gradually becoming clear that while it still makes sense to seek outside help on the off chance it might eventually come, they cannot rely on outside help, whether they're talking about church independence or genuine political independence for Bulgaria. It's just becoming time and time again clear to these revolutionaries that they can't simply assume, oh, obviously the Russians or the Serbs will have our back because they consistently do not. Now, 1850 saw this further confirmed when British diplomatic pressure got the port, right, the Ottoman government, to recognize a Protestant millet. Now, so you remember there, there this millet system uh, that basically divided the Ottoman population by their religion. And up till now, really, it was just sort of Orthodox Christians. I, I can't remember if there was one for Catholics. I don't think so. I think there's, there's not quite enough for, to really justify that. But now the sort of Christian millet is getting further subdivided, which is giving Protestants comparatively more power, but it's taking away power from Orthodox Christians because they don't have uh, the same kind of population and backing from the Protestants. In addition, the Ottoman government also recognized the church in the kingdom of Greece as independent, which unsurprisingly the patriarchate in Constantinople did not want. Again, showing that despite the fact that, you know, the patriarch in Constantinople was Greek, he was still more concerned with, you know, his own power and the power of the kind of broader Orthodox church rather than the power of the Orthodox church in an independent Greek kingdom. So I, th I think it's also kind of an interesting example of how the politics play out here. Now, these two victories together did bring hope to Bulgarians that an independent church was possible because, well, the kingdom of Greece had just gotten it. And in a way, I mean, not quite the same thing, but the Protestants had also just gotten some, some concessions. So at this point, a letter passed around through the Bulgarian community of Bucharest, which simply stated, quote, without a national church, there is no salvation, end quote. And I think that circulating letter in, for the Bulgarians of Bucharest really shows how a lot of Bulgarians were thinking about the church at this point, that it is essential. It is not a sideshow. It is the show. And not many Bulgarians are kind of really seeing political independence as a, a feasibility now, as, as something that's possible. But this church is seen as possible, and it is seen as an essential first step. Now, with this kind of direct action in mind, the end of 1849 saw a band under the leadership of Nikola Srendak, Kosta Chavka, and Tsonov Vlasotinica. They together kind of began work on a new rebellion in Vidin, using a local monastery as a base of operations. By the next spring, they were ready and the rebellion was launched on May 27th around Belgradchik. Known as the Vidin Rebellion, this was actually the largest rebellion in northwestern Bulgaria in the entire first half of the 19th century. It was far more widely known than the previous uprisings, in part due to improved communications technology. So all that is to say, this rebellion was a much bigger deal than all the smaller ones we've talked about even at the beginning of this episode. Now, the rebellion quickly spread to nearby Bulgarian regions as locals began to form small bands with the aim of taking Vidin and Lom. Initially, about a thousand Bulgarian fighters moved to take Lom. However, they did not possess any guns. Still, they did take the city and proceeded to Belgradchik to conquer the fortress there. 
On the way, the squad was met near Lom by some Ottoman cavalry. The Bulgarians were defeated in a two-hour battle, and Captain Kosio, one of their leaders, was killed. Still, after this, another 400 volunteers joined them in their fight along the way as they moved towards Belgradchik. Another force near Vidin was also defeated by regular Ottoman troops, scattering their forces. But soon, the Bulgarians managed to gather together several thousand volunteers equipped with about 200 guns, and they laid siege to the fortress at Belgradchik. On June 9th, Ottoman forces came behind their rebel positions and attacked them as they lay siege to Belgradchik, dispersing them. Many of the defeated Bulgarians fled to Serbia as the prince there re- received an appeal from over a hundred villages in northwestern Bulgaria asking for aid. And well, you can guess what the response probably will be. But still, before that happened, on June 28th, Ali Riza Pasha arrived in Vidin to study the reasons for the rebellion and to re-establish order. He sent delegations to the rebels, giving them three days to disband. And he offered to allow the population to appoint representatives to communicate with the authorities directly on their own behalf. The local elders wrote a letter describing the difficulties that they were facing in the region and emphasizing that the population was loyal to the sultan but were only seeking their own, their basically their legal rights. So it's it's interesting this rebellion happens but the local leaders are trying to say hey, hey we're not against the sultan probably meaning please don't engage in harsh reprisals here we only want the legal rights we have. And this touches to something we've talked about in previous episodes that these Ottoman reforms are having this ironic effect because the central government passes reforms and gives new rights to the population of the empire, but very often those aren't really implemented on the ground. And so just as frequently those new rights become just reasons for more rebellions instead of discouraging those rebellions because the gap between how the law is supposed to be and how it actually is widens and causes more discontent. Anyway, so this kind of delegation of local elders uh, is accepted by Ali Riza Pasha, and they demand first that the tax system change. They want fixed amounts of taxes, so they know what they're going to pay ahead of time, and they want to pay them directly to the regional government instead of to, well, tax farmers who take a huge chunk for themselves. They also want the Turkish population to leave their region and to be allowed to carry weapons. They actually requested that the sultan make Ali Riza Pasha the administrative head of the region as well, showing that they clearly liked him and appreciated his well, his approach to things there. Meanwhile, Serbia handed over rebel leaders seeking asylum and, well, as usual, showed that they were ready to ignore the pleas of their neighbors and exploit the trust of the Bulgarians in order to improve their position vis-a-vis the Ottomans. Still, overall, the Ottomans were being a lot more flexible than they were before. And in August, a delegation from the region was actually accepted in Constantinople. They essentially formed a committee to look into the issues that were causing this. Uh, So although for now, the Ottomans aren't really taking any concrete actions, it seems they're genuinely looking into, okay, what caused this rebellion and what can we do about it? And just like that, the Vidin rebellion was over. Around 10,000 Bulgarians had participated with around 700 dying in the fighting with thousands more being killed in reprisals. Ultimately, the only major policy change that really happened was some agrarian reform. So, you know, we can see this as a small improvement, right? The The response wasn't purely reprisals and massacres. There were, though there were probably some, 
you know, harsh reprisals. We see that thousands did die in those. So, you know, whether that was from the central Ottoman government, probably not. Most likely that's still local Ottomans. It seems like the central government is more concerned with, okay, what reforms do we need to make in this region to prevent this from happening again? So again, I think I think that's a real improvement at this point, even if, you know, local Ottoman notables and leaders and things are doing things the way they've always done and simply massacring Bulgarians in response to this kind of an uprising. But things are slowly beginning to change. Also that same year, thinking about reforms that are affecting Bulgarians, the Ottomans implemented a new system of trade laws that were inspired by the Napoleonic Code and which substantially modernized the trade system in Bulgaria. So for all the Bulgarian merchants whose wealth is forming kind of an important bedrock of the Bulgarian National Revival, this is really good news. So while it may seem like, okay, trade law reforms in Bulgaria, what does that have to do with anything? Those are really going to help bring in the money that is needed to fund Bulgarian advancements. Also more generally, 1850s saw, as usual, many more high schools opening throughout Bulgaria, continuing the educational revolution that's really sweeping the country. And incidentally, one of the ones that was open this year is the one that my, my wife attended. So I thought that was kind of cool that this is the year her high school was open. Uh, and really just overall, the country's educational advancements are continuing, in part fueled by Russian money. We talked about the, the yearly stipends, but also from a lot of wealthy Bulgarians donating money, but also sometimes from, you know, whole towns and villages sort of passing the hat around and collecting money to build these schools, to hire teachers, to purchase textbooks and things like that. So this is really moving ahead pretty quickly now. It's accelerating the, the advancement levels. Now, interestingly, on a broader, broader level, 1850 was also the first year in which the majority of the population of the Ottoman Empire did not live in the European portion of the empire, in the Balkans. Now, obviously, this was a result of a combination of the loss of Balkan territories like Greece, but also a bit of a shift in the population. Uh, and the overall population of the empire, just to give you a benchmark, is about 30 million people at this point, which is interestingly, similar to what it had been about two centuries earlier, showing how a, a combination of territorial loss and insufficient development relative to other European states had really had an impact. I mean, you think of, you know, 200 years of development and the empire has the same population. You can get a feel for just how much smaller it is and well, how different that should be. Now, for reference, because I thought it was interesting, at this point in 1850, the Ottoman Empire's total population is pretty similar to that of France. So if you were kind of comparing it to the European powers, that's a good comparison you can make. But as the population of changing, it was also, well, the way they were governed was also being changed. Uh, we've talked about how the Ottoman Empire was attempting to modernize its administration. And to give some context, at this point, mid-19th century, there's about 2,000 bureaucratic officials working for the Ottoman government. So those 30 million people are being administered by about 2,000 people. But 50 years from now, end of the 19th century, that number is going to be somewhere between 35 and 50,000. So you really, in those numbers, you can get a feel for just how big the Ottoman administrative state is going to be growing over the coming decades. I mean, 2,000 to up to 50,000 in just 50 years. It's an enormous jump. And so that decentralized kind of feudal way in which the Ottomans have governed their empire for so long, that is finally really starting to change. And 
Well, this is going to change how the Ottomans collect taxes, how they fight wars, how involved they are into the daily lives of their subjects. And yeah, so we can, th thinking about this more broadly, we can see the first half of the 19th century, all these reforms as really laying the groundwork, but the, not much has changed. We've seen, right, a lot of laws have changed in Constantinople that hasn't really been implemented on the ground. But as these numbers of bureaucrats grow, there are going to be a lot more people to implement these policies on the ground. And so we'll have to see how that affects Bulgaria and the rest of the empire. Now, following 1850 the, and, well, the Vidin Rebellion, the next two years were relatively quiet in Ottoman Bulgaria. More towns like Lovech and Vratza appointed Bulgarian church officials to slowly combat Greek domination of the church. Petko Slavekov published a literary collection. He's the guy that the bookseller square in Sofia is named after. And a young Vasil Levski began training as a monk at the Hilandarsky Monastery. But although things were pretty quiet in Bulgaria, in the wider world, trouble was brewing. Now you'll recall that by this point, Russia had strong influence within the Ottoman Empire and had even propped up the empire against the Egyptians. But Russia still strongly desired to control the Straits, the Dardanelles, and to gain better access to the Mediterranean. France and Britain, on the other hand, wished to preserve the Ottoman Empire to prevent precisely that from happening, despite their desire for Ottoman Middle Eastern territories. So, in both cases, right, whether you're talking about Russia, France, or Britain, they all kind of want the Ottoman Empire to be propped up as it is, but they also want the empire gone or weak so they can take advantage. So each one of these states has these kind of dueling desires vis-a-vis -vis the Ottomans. All that is to say, with these kind of disparate desires and, and kind of political forces, the concert of Europe is beginning to fracture and break. The previously unified European approach to supporting the status quo was facing this Russian desire to expand its influence. In particular, Russia now expected that in return for the help it provided in putting down the revolutions of 1848, that Russia should be given more leeway in using its strength to dominate the Ottomans. A classic example where, you know, one person thinks, well, I did this nice thing, so I should be given this kind of privilege, but it's not directly communicated to the other people in the group, and so the other people don't think like that at all. And so something that is sort of an obvious sort of uh, a thing that uh, one person thinks they feels they completely deserve the other people are completely unaware of it so i, I think that's like a good you, you probably had something like that in your friend groups that's a good analogy here now at the same time british policy was also evolving now great britain wished to preserve the ottomans but also saw a potential russo-ottoman war as a chance to draw russian attention away from expansion towards scandinavia or towards india both of which would threaten Britain. Thus, the British didn't want the Russians to expand at Ottoman expense, but they also kind of wanted a Russian-Ottoman war. In other words, they wanted war as long as they could win it. Now, the chain of events that really brought all these competing desires to a head began with French Emperor Napoleon III, he being the nephew of the famous Napoleon, and not nearly as talented, but uh, with perhaps a bigger ego. Uh, Napoleon III, very, very big ego, very big idea of himself. He was burning with ambition and desire to return France to the kind of great power status it had before losing the Napoleonic Wars. Now, he managed to obtain the status as protector of the Christian population of Palestine, 
which directly conflicted with Russia's status as protector of all the Orthodox Christians in the entire empire. So essentially the question here was, if you were an Orthodox Christian in Palestine, who was your protector? Was it France or Russia? Because both had a claim to that status. Now, obviously Russia was furious about this, and in response to Russian protests, France sent a gunboat into the Black Sea, which broke a previous treaty forbidding this, and France also pressured the Ottomans to hand over even more rights that were previously held by the Orthodox Church overall in Palestine and Jerusalem to France. Russia, in response, upped the ante again, placing soldiers on the north bank of the Danube. War was seeming more and more likely, leading the Russians to make a push to prevent the British and French from joining against them should they go to war against the Ottomans. In essence, Russia felt very confident it could win a war against the Ottomans alone, much less so that they could win a war against Ottomans alongside Britain, France, or both. In the late days of 1852, the British and French both sent naval forces to support the Ottomans as Russian diplomats in Constantinople attempted to assert their demands, resulting in them basically pushing the Sultan further away from Russia, who had been an Ottoman ally not that long ago, towards the British and French for support. Once it was clear to the Tsar that his diplomatic push had failed, he instructed his armies to occupy Wallachia and Moldavia, again banking on the Austrian Empire to back them in gratitude for the help that Russia had given in 1848. Because, of course, Wallachia and Moldavia are in the Austrian backyard, and although the Austrian Empire, as you know, has kind of pulled back from the Balkans pretty substantially since, you know, say 100 years previously, they're still interested and they still have, you know, a large army and some diplomatic pull. However, there was still some remnants of the concert of Europe left. You know, there, there were still people trying to keep it together and to prevent this war. Representatives from the United Kingdom, France, Austria, and Prussia all met in Vienna to attempt to broker a solution to the crisis. Russia actually accepted the proposal that they put together, but Sultan Abdul-Majid I rejected it leading to a revision, which the Russians then rejected. Now, at this point, France and Britain were ready for a war, while Austria and Prussia were still really hoping to use diplomacy. Not that surprising, considering their relations with Russia following 1848. They were somewhat grateful to Russia and didn't want a war with them. In November of 1853, Russian warships attacked the Ottoman navy in and around Sinop on the Anatolian Black Sea coast, giving France and Britain all the reason they needed to declare war. Soon, the Ottoman Empire, France, and Britain were all at war with Russia. The first war between the European powers since the demise of Napoleon had begun. A memorandum written to Tsar Nicholas I as these events were unfolding summarizes the Russian view of the emerging conflict well. It stated, quote, France takes Algeria from Turkey, and almost every year England annexes another Indian principality. None of this disturbs the balance of power. But when Russia occupies Moldavia and Wallachia, albeit only temporarily, that disturbs the balance of power. France occupies Rome and stays there several years during peacetime. That is nothing. But Russia only thinks of occupying Constantinople and the peace of Europe is threatened. The English declare war on the Chinese who have, it seems, offended them. No one has the right to intervene. But Russia is obliged to ask Europe for permission if it quarrels with its neighbor. England threatens Greece to support the false claims of a miserable Jew and burns its fleet. That is an unlawful action. 
But Russia demands a treaty to protect millions of Christians, and that is deemed to strengthen its position in the East at the expense of the balance of power. We can expect nothing from the West but blind hatred and malice. And at this point, there's a comment written in the margin by Nicholas I. This is the whole point. So overall end quote there. I think, you know, people who follow geopolitics today will hear some similarities in, in the kind of relationship between Russia and the West. But I think that kind of insight into the Russian perspective on things right now is really useful and, and provides a lot of context. And well, I'd say overall, the reasons for the breakdown of the concert of Europe are very clear in this document. Some powers like Britain would never consider the system as preventing its own growing strength but more as a way to keep everyone on the continent in line. So long as the main challenge in Europe is simply suppressing revolutions and reforms, the Holy Alliance and the Concert of Europe can fulfill their ambitions and will put a stop to them. But once these systems were faced with the challenges of every European power attempting to grow their own power and influence simultaneously, those systems broke. And it's with that breaking that I want to end this episode. The aftermath of 1848 helped spark yet more revolts and calls for reforms in Bulgaria, yet while these are crushed, things are gradually changing for the Bulgarians of the Ottoman Empire. But with ambitious leaders like Napoleon III, Nicholas I, and Abdul Majid I in charge, no longer needing to focus as much on revolutions, the buildup of the events which led to the Crimean War makes sense. Next time, We'll see whether Britain, France, and the Ottomans together can take on the rising Russian Empire, and perhaps more importantly, how the outcome will shift the political landscape of Europe. Most importantly for Bulgaria, will supporting an anti-Ottoman rebellion become acceptable? Will Russia emerge as a more powerful state ready to back Bulgarian independence, or a weaker one, which is more hesitant? Regardless of the outcome, things are about to change substantially. This episode was written and produced by me, Eric Halsey. The theme music was written and performed by Teddy Raven. Check out the Bulgarian language version of the podcast at bghistorypodcast.com. And please leave us a review wherever you listen. And as always, thanks, and I'll catch you in the next one.